Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of Desi Books, news and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we have two segments of Desi Craft Chat. First, there's Priyanka Champaneri discussing her debut novel, The City of Good Death, which won the 2018 Restless Books Prize for New Immigrant Writing. We also have Dhruti Shah discussing her new book, Bear Markets and Beyond, which just came out in the US this past week. Please sit back and enjoy. In Notable New Books for April, you can find all the titles mentioned in this new book segment at bookshop.org, which benefits local independent booksellers directly. Go to bookshop.org slash lists slash they see dash books dash 2021. There's also a new UK based list at uk.bookshop.org slash lists slash they see dash books dash UK dash 2021. My apologies to non-US and non-UK listeners, but I always mention or note they see books from other parts of the world on these episodes as well. Uh, I just don't have a bookshop list for them. And I know I don't always catch all new books by writers of South Asian origin, so if you've got a new book coming out, please tag the Desi Books account on Twitter or Instagram to let me know. You can also send me an email to hellodesibooks at gmail.com. The social media links will be in the transcript, and they're always on the website. Now, here are a few new and notable books out in the second half of April. First, If God is a Virus by Seema Yasmin. It's a poetry collection that I missed in my first half of April roundup in the previous episode. Um, It's based on original reporting from West Africa and the United States and the poet's experiences as a doctor and journalist. And it charts the course of the largest and deadliest Ebola epidemic in history, telling the stories of Ebola survivors, outbreak responders, journalists, and the virus itself. Are You Enjoying is the debut short story collection by Mira Sethi. It's inspired by her own experiences and looks at the world of television and politics in Pakistan and upends traditional notions of identity, family, intimacy, and more. I Belong Here by Anita Sethi is out in the UK now. It's a memoir about nature. Anita Sethi was on a journey through Northern England when she became the victim of a race-hate crime. And the book is about her journey through the natural landscapes of the North, and it's one of reclamation, a way of saying that this is her land too, 
and that she belongs in the UK as a brown woman. Southbound by Anjali Njeti is a debut personal essay collection about identity, race, feminism, political activism, and more. She also has a debut novel coming out in May titled The Parted Earth. Uh, more on that in May. Besharam on Love and Other Bad Behaviors by Priya Alika Elias is an essay collection looking at themes of family, culture, body image, sex, and feminism. Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri is her self-translated novel. It was originally published in Italian. It covers a year in the life of an unnamed narrator in an unnamed city in the middle of her own life's journey with themes of exuberance and dread, attachment and estrangement. This book is unlike what we read from Lahiri in English so far, at least in terms of narrative style from what I see. Names of the Women by Jeet Tayo is a novel about the women whose roles were suppressed, reduced or erased in the Gospels. 15 women whose lives were intertwined with that of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting reimagining of the New Testament. In the first Desi Craft Chat segment, we've got Priyanka Champaneri. Priyanka received her MFA in creative writing from George Mason University, and she's been a fellow at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts numerous times. She received the 2018 Restless Books Prize for New Immigrant Writing for The City of Good Death, her debut novel. Here's a bit about the book. It's set in the Indian city of Benares, or as it is also known, Varanasi or Kashi. And it is the place where pilgrims go for a good death, to be released from the cycle of reincarnation, as they believe the, the Hindu philosophy of reincarnation. Pramesh Prasad is the manager of one of Kashi's many death hostels where these pilgrims stay during their time in the city. And when one of Pramesh's own loved ones dies, he has to revisit everything that he believes he knows about family, love, life, death, ritual, and the ways that we honor the living and the dead. I reviewed this novel for the Star Tribune earlier, and I interviewed Priyanka to learn more about her craft and process with this novel. On a personal note, I loved this novel and the insightful responses that Priyanka had to my questions. Have a listen. So welcome Priyanka, congratulations on the debut novel and the 
2018 Restless Books uh, Prize. So um, the questions that I want to focus on for this discussion are pretty much around craft, as I've mentioned to you before, because that's something that I find, especially you know, with writers of South Asian origin, we end up talking too much about identity and other things and not get to talk about our craft. And so that's one of the things that I really wanna make sure that I give the opportunity to writers on this platform when, when they come on is to speak about your craft and how you worked on your book. So that's what we'll get going with. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jenny. I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to you today. Every story that we write develops over a long period of time sometimes, whether we're conscious of that or not. So but there's always a point in time in, in the story's evolution when we know that here's a story, I want to write it. So what was that point for you with this novel? I think I actually might have experienced that point with this book um, twice at, at two different points in time. Um, I started writing this book in my last year of graduate school in my MFA program at George Mason University. And before the semester started, I had spent a lot of time doing research and then that period was done. And from that research, I had come up with what I thought was the outline and structure for a pretty good book. Um, I, I was confident that this book could be really interesting and I was excited to write it. But when I sat down to actually get going with the writing um, and that outline had sprung out of the research I had done. So when I say I was excited to write it, it's because these character voices had popped into my head, these bits of scene had popped into my head and the outline that I created was informed by all of these ideas that had just kind of burgeoned within my imagination. So that was the initial point where I thought, this is the story. But when I sat down to start writing it, it just wasn't happening. It just felt like I kept knocking up against this closed door and everything I wrote felt false. It felt really, really painful. And while the writing is often painful, it felt painful in the wrong way. It just, my instinct was really rebelling against this thing that I had told myself was going to be the book. So this went on for a couple of weeks. And finally, one day I was sitting in my public library, staring at my blank laptop screen. And I had kind of gotten a bit to the point of desperation because um, I didn't know what to do. And as I was sitting there, an image popped into my head. And it was an image that really didn't have anything to do with the outline I had created. I didn't know where that image had come from, but I was really at the end of my rope. And I thought to myself, why don't I just go ahead and write this down? It doesn't have anything to do with my outline, but it seems interesting and intriguing. So there's no harm in writing it down. So I did. And then that image just kept building and building and building. And the image turned out to be what the current book opens with, which is two boatmen out on the river taking a secret drink from their wives and they come upon this other boat from which a body has been secured and it's just kind of being dragged along in the river. And the moment I knew that this was the right way to go was when that body showed up because it was something I had not planned for at all, but I 
was immediately struck with this sense of excitement I had not felt before. That outline I had created for myself that I was so certain of had just, every time I started thinking about it, it was just making me feel tired and like I really didn't know what I was doing because that idea clearly wasn't working. But then this body showed up and there was so much potential there and so many questions that I wanted to find out the answers to. Who is this body? How did they end up in the river? Why were they in the city? I knew somehow this body was connected to somebody in the city, but I didn't know who or what that connection was or what the past was. Just this single image brought forth so many questions and so many paths for discovery that potential of writing this book exciting in a way that the initial idea that I thought was the way to go had really just been utterly lacking. So I still count both of those things as doorways into the book because I don't think I would have gotten to the second right doorway without first trying out that first one that just wasn't opening for me. Well, that, you know, that's fascinating because, um, and, and I like what you said about how that the body in the opening scene opened up questions for you. Because I, I say that to my students when I'm teaching is that if what you're writing isn't, you know, isn't raising questions for you, it's not going to raise questions for the reader, right? I mean, that's a pretty straightforward thing. And so, um, that, no, that's kind of, um, that's interesting. And it's interesting that you had this outline already and, and yeah. you know, it, it just wasn't working there. That's, yeah. Now this, this book won the 2018 Restless Books Prize for, is it new immigrant writing or just immigrant writing? It's, it's new immigrant new, writing, yeah. Okay, new immigrant writing. So could you um, share a bit about its journey from, from this evolution that you've just described, you know, you, where you got, you had this image and that's how this thing started rolling. So from that evolution of that idea and, and the story starting to move, to the publication? Sure, so I think it took me about five or six years. The timeline is now really muddled in my head because I started writing this book in 2009. I think it took five or six years for me to finally get a draft that I thought was ready to be seen by agents. So I spent about a year querying agents um, I ended up with my amazing agent, Lee Feldman, who has been just a fantastic resource and friend and collaborator. Um, and we spent, we, I, I did a small period of revision with her and with her assistant at the time, the novelist Alana Massad. And then we spent about two years submitting it around. And the book made the rounds to basically every tier of the publishing industry in the United States. Um, so everything from the big five to smaller houses and independent presses. And we also sent it around to some houses in the United Kingdom, as well as big houses in India. And the response we got was strangely universal, which is everybody loved the writing. They loved the visuals, they loved aspects about it, they loved the idea. But for some reason, they couldn't quite make the push to actually acquire the book. Um, so that, again, that period was about two years. And in that two years, we tried a couple of other things. Um, there was a bit more revision that I did on my own. 
Um, but again, that response was pretty universal. And we got to the point where I was able to have the conversation with my agent about how the book probably needed to be shelved because at that point, you know, it was three years out from creating a draft and essentially I needed to move on with my writing life. It didn't look like anybody at this current moment was interested, but I also couldn't be waiting around. Lee wanted, Lee saw potential in me, I think, to write more books. She wasn't interested in me just because of this one. I feel she was interested in my career as a writer. Um, so we decided to shelve this one and um, I just needed to start that process of moving on. In that period of time, after we both mutually made that decision, I was on a creative writing email listserv and I ended up ha looking. Oh, Priyanka, I can't hear you for some reason. Can you? Oh, sure. I can hear oh. you. I wonder oh. if it went out. Yeah, it went out just a little bit there. Could you could you start again from, um, you know, when you mutually decided and then? Oh, sure. Okay. So we mutually decided that I should shelve the book and um, I kind of needed to move on and start thinking about what my next project was going to be. In that time after that, I was on a creative writing email listserv and I happened to look at the email one day and there was an advertisement for the Restless Books Prize for new immigrant writing. And they alternate between fiction and nonfiction every year. And the year I was looking at happened to be fiction. And the judge happened to be Taya Obrett, along with the publisher, Alon Stobbins. And I saw that the prize was publication and a cash advance. So I thought to myself, well, you know, everybody else has said no. And I'm pretty sure this isn't going to go anywhere either. But I've seen this email. I've read this email. I have a duty to myself and to this book to just go ahead and enter because it's not going to hurt anything, but I need to be able to tell myself in 10 years that I really did try everything. So I went ahead and I submitted to the contest and I forgot about it. And then over the summer, I got an email that I was one of five finalists for the contest. And again, I didn't really think anything of it at all because I had come very, very close several times beforehand. And um, I had been disappointed all of those other times. So I had no reason to think that this was gonna be any different. So I forgot about it. And then in the fall, I got another email. And this time that email was from the publisher, Alon Stobbins saying that I had won. Wow. Congratulations again. That's quite a journey because, uh, and you know, what you said about there were plenty of times when, as you were describing that, I was nodding my head because with my own first book, I got much the same reaction, which was, oh, we love the writing, but uh, not really sure we want a short story collection for a debut. You know, if you've got a novel, let us know. <laughs> you know, in my case, that was the um, the usual response. But, um, you know, and I, I, I recall seeing this prize, but you're right, they do the fiction and non-fiction alternating. So you really have to get it in the right year if you're going to submit. So um, I'm, I'm glad you did and I'm glad you won. Um, so let, let's come back to the novel. Um, although, I mean, I could ask you tons more questions about the whole agenting process, but that's not the goal of this yeah. podcast. But um, let's talk about the novel. Now, it explores uh, death and the various uh, ramifications for the living. 
And we see most of these uh, through the sibling relationships of the two Prasad brothers. There's also another sibling death in the story. It's, it's a connected story arc. And then there's a third smaller arc with siblings where you have the two brothers running that disreputable hotel in the seedy part of town. So what is it about sibling relationships? Because I, I thought, okay, there's an interesting pattern here with these three different, you know, but braided explorations. What was it about siblings that kind of drew you to do that? I am so glad you asked this question, Jenny, because nobody has asked it yet so far. Um, mm -hmm. I love sibling narratives in anything. I'm always looking for it in books. I'm always looking for it in movies and in TV. Um, it really is one of those trigger things for me where whenever I see a narrative that is centered around a sibling relationship, um, I'm going to watch it or read it or whatever, no matter what. Um, I have a sibling. I have one older brother who I'm, I was very close to when I was a child and who I am very close to now as an adult. One reason I think I'm attracted to it is I, I don't think it's a relationship that is a primary one that gets explored um, very often. I also think I never see the type of sibling relationship that I want to see explored and that, you know, it, it can be an amicable relationship. Very often you see some sort of rift that has occurred. And so in, in many ways, my book is breaking that rule about the type of sibling relationship that I want to see. But the reason I think I am so attracted to that relationship and I see so much potential in it is if you have a sibling, this is a person who potentially is the one person who is able to see you at every single stage of your life for the longest possible duration of time. They have seen you, if they're older, they've seen you from birth all the way up until one of you ends up passing. And there is just so much there that fascinates me. A sibling is somebody who therefore is able to see you at every single form of identity that you end up taking, every single persona who you decide to assume. And I'm interested in when a break occurs with that sibling relationship, particularly if two siblings were very, very close when they were growing up, but then they end up growing into adults who are very different and they become like strangers. So I'm interested in how that break occurs and whether they're able to reconcile and ever come back to an equivalent closeness. I'm also interested in the obligation and the loyalty involved in that relationship. Because again, this is somebody who potentially has seen you from the very beginning. So there's no hiding, you know, every single person goes through this experimental period where they're trying out different identities, different personas, trying to figure out who is the person that they want to be. And there's no hiding from your sibling when you're doing that experimenting because they knew you from the very beginning. And in many ways, they, they know the core of you that you might be wanting to hide. So that is also really fascinating to me. Um, 
I hadn't really thought about it being these three different sets of siblings, but you're right. I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, and I think just siblings is probably something I will be exploring in my writing no matter what, because it just is a fascinating relationship to me. And I never tire of seeing it in other work. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I told, I'm with you. I, I am one of five, so, wow. you know, yeah, I'm one of five and um, four of us are sisters. And so for, for me, I mean, we, we can have a separate conversation at another time about just what that entails, but I, I shy away from exploring it too much because I know my sisters will read it and think, okay, which one is me or what sure. is she right here? Yeah. So, um, but um, but no, but I'm glad to hear you say because I totally agree with you actually that you know the sibling uh, sees you pretty much uh, in general the longest you know longer than your parents would know you longer than your partner might have known you because you only meet them as adults most of the time. Um, so yeah, it's it, it is a fascinating relationship and um, yeah, in in terms of just uh, relationship psychology, there's plenty to be explored, right? Um, lots of drama, lots of drama Definitely. for fiction. Yeah. So um, talking about drama for fiction, what I love about the story is also um, something that I've done in my own fiction, which is this, this matter of factness you have about ghosts. Because when I grew up in India, my mom would tell us these Gujarati folk tales, right? And ghosts would just kind of wander in and out of them like it was no big deal. And I'd be like, wait, wait, wait a minute, what? You know, um, and, uh, and obviously I'm not, I don't, I don't believe necessarily in ghosts. Um, I just think they're terrific fictional devices. Sure. So, um, you know, and whether we call it magical realism or just, uh, you know, fantastic fantasy or whatever but how, how do you feel generally about ghosts and fiction seeing as you've got one in yours and what are some things that uh you thought about carefully in terms of how to characterize a, this ghost in your story well i have to tell you jenny i'm so envious of these stories that your mother told you because i'm also a gujarati but my mother mm is so superstitious. So we mm -hmm. heard stories, but she would never, even to this day, mm -hmm. she would never bring a ghost into it. And whenever I have questions about the supernatural, she won't talk about it because mm -hmm. I think to her, she sees real power in talking, being the act of conjuring. Mm -hmm. So she would never, she would never actually say anything directly. And I had a friend when I was in college who was from the Philippines and her mother was very similar. Like they weren't allowed to have a Ouija board when they were kids because wow. her mother was certain that they would end up calling something down to like mm -hmm. inhabit the house. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad to hear you. The, the term magical realism has definitely been applied to this book. And I'm sure some folks listening to this might think that might think whatever but I don't see this book as magical realism I truly see everything that I wrote about as something that could actually happen um I do have a belief in I don't know if it's specifically ghosts or if you want to call it the supernatural but I do believe in some essence that is out there that we perhaps do not understand fully mm -hmm. Um, with ghosts specifically, I don't think I had a intentional attraction to the idea of ghosts, but I have loved fairy tales since I was a child, fairy tales from any part of the world. Um, my most loved books 
still even as an adult are this entire collection of fairy books that were edited by Andrew Lang. So it's oh, like, yeah. Yep. Yeah, the olive fairy book, the brown, mm -hmm. etc. And what I love about those books is exactly what you just mentioned with your mother telling stories, the wandering in and out, is that you'll have these characters who are very much rooted in a reality that you recognize. And suddenly something will happen that is not in the reality that you recognize, but it's not called, like attention is not called to that element at all. Um, it just happens and they roll with it and they go with it and they don't think anything of it. There's no explanation offered for it at all. It's just accepted that this is part of that world. Mm -hmm. And I really, really love that element. I love reading books like that. And I love employing that element. And I think it goes back to this deep yearning that I never grew out of, which is I am looking to see what is possible? Where can we find magic in our current day-to-day -day world? We're living in an age where we're just accelerating, it seems, and finding answers to everything and clearing up every single mystery that exists. When I was in kindergarten, people still didn't know why the dinosaurs had died out. And now we know, like that's something that was discovered within my lifetime. And I'm just always desperately on the lookout for evidence that some kind of magic exists. And I think ghosts are one place where we still don't have all the answers. So it is one area where that kind of thing can happen and I can satisfy that desire for that. When I was, yeah, when I was looking to characterize, I was, I had to be really careful, right? Because I didn't want this to come off as kitschy or, you know, there are so many ways where when you're writing about something like that, it could be just, just not taken seriously. And so I wanted it to happen in almost the most mundane way possible. And this particular ghost ends up haunting a washroom, a, a very necessary part of any dwelling and it ends up disturbing some water pots, but it does it in a, a very chilling way, I hope. Um, but I did, I did have to think long and hard about how I wanted the ghost to assert itself. And it ends up asserting itself in some other more sinister ways, I think. Um, mm -hmm. But it was definitely on my mind that this couldn't be something that was laughable or that could be made silly. It had to be done in a way that it both could happen in reality. You could see something like this. You could, you could imagine perhaps like your mother telling this story and just like it was no big deal and right. that there's nothing extraordinary in it, but it also had to be, it had to fit the mood of what this ghost wants. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think you achieved that. I think you didn't do the, you know, over explanation or, you know, try to sort of exaggerate or, or over dramatize, which I was I was worried as I was reading the book, to be honest. Wow. I was like, I hope she doesn't go there. But that so that was a relief. Oh, um, yeah. Now, now there's quite a bit of nonfiction and reportage uh, out there about, you know, the death hotels of Varanasi or Kashi. So 
how much, you know, you mentioned research at the beginning, at the top. Um, so how much of your own primary or secondary research did you do for the book? How concerned were you to represent the place well enough? Because the place is almost a character in the story. It's not just a setting. So did you go live there? Did you interview, talk to people? What was your process? I'm so glad you asked this question. And this is a question I've tried to answer in every interviewer event I've done so far. Um, but I have actually never been to Benares. I've mm -hmm. never set foot in the city. I've never seen any of it firsthand with my own eyes. I haven't heard any of the sounds or smelled any of the scents. I have not been there. Um, I've been to India twice, only ever as a tourist, and I never made it to that city. And that was a real concern for me before I started writing this book. And it's still something, honestly, that causes me quite a bit of unease. Um, those questions of what gives me the right to tell this story, what makes me qualified to tell this story, I think I'm always going to feel those questions whenever I look at this book sitting on my shelf. They're never going to go away. But I also don't know that I'm ever going to be the person who is going to be able to answer them. Um, my research, therefore, was primarily secondary resources. So I started out with quite a few ethnographies, and I list all of the different books that I looked at um, in the back of the book in my author's note. But I, I really started out not with the intention of writing a book. What happened was I had a friend who had sent me um, a link to a Reuters article that was titled, Check In and Die in Two Weeks or Get Out. And that article turned out to be about the death hostels of Benares. And I was very familiar of Benares being this holy city that Hindus believed that if you die there, you'll be freed from the cycle of reincarnation. I'd kind of always known about that because I grew up in a fairly spiritual household with a lot of literary material that I could read or not read according to, to my whim. So I, I kind of knew this, but I'd never really thought very much about it. But the article was my introduction to the death hostels. I had never heard of these places before ever. And I was instantly really fascinated. It was a really big leap to make to go from reading an article to deciding you're going to write a book about it. And again, that question of, well, you've never been there. And at the end of the day, what do you know? Just kept drumming in my head. So what I started doing is because I was just really, really captivated with the idea of this place and I wanted to learn more about it is I just started reading about it just to satisfy my own curiosity. And the more I read, the more fascinated I became and I just wanted to learn more. And so again, quite a few ethnographies that I went through and I looked at. And from learning all of that information, I also then became really hungry for a visual. So I started transitioning to documentaries, um, to books of photography, to other film, to looking at short tourist made videos on YouTube, anything I could get to just place myself there. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened from doing all of that is I ended up building a version of the city in my head inadvertently. I did not set out to do that. It just ended up happening. And in building that city in my head, the thing that I mentioned at the top of this conversation about characters just showing up, 
about hearing bits of dialogue and seeing bits of scene, that also started happening as an after effect of all of that research. So I had this idea. I didn't set out to have an idea. I didn't set out to write a book in this place that I had never been to, but it was an idea that really, really preoccupied me. And there were a lot of things that made me unqualified to write this book, not only because I have never been to the city, but I don't have any family heritage there. You know, my family is not from Benares. My parents are from Gujarat, so that makes me Gujarati. I was born and raised and educated in the United States, so I have an additional layer or lens that I had to surmount and look through. Um, I do not speak Hindi, so I don't have any familiarity with the language in that sense. I mean, you know, I watch Bollywood movies, so I have enough of it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, there were just quite a few tick marks against me. Um, at the end of the day, I think the reason I decided to make the leap was I had the inspiration in my head and it felt like something I couldn't turn away from because I wanted to discover so badly for myself what that story was. And I also had other things under my belt that I did use quite a bit. And those things were my lifelong familiarity with Hinduism and with that system of philosophical belief. And also, even though I have traveled to India very, very little, I do have an intensely visual memory. And I remembered every detail from those travels that was interesting to me. And what's interesting to me is very much the stuff of life, the mundane and the stuff of domesticity. So what kind of rubbish is on the street, what the animals smell like, what kind of laundry is hanging out of the window, what a mother is yelling at her child to make sure that they come in on time for dinner, um, all of that stuff I had packed away in my head. So I was able to call on all of that when I was writing. It doesn't change the fact though that I'm still not sure if I was the right person to write this book, but I did. And at the end of the day, somebody who has been living in that city for 20, 30, 40 years, I'm certain that if they ever picked up my book, they will absolutely see things that I got wrong. Um, I know I got many things wrong, but what I think I got right, what I feel fairly confident about getting right is that I know the characters and I know the story that, that I ended up telling. And hopefully the reader finds some emotional resonance in those two things. Why? Well, I appreciate you being so honest and candid about that. Um, because, I mean, obviously I did wonder uh, as I read the book and I, I grew up in India. I've, I haven't spent time in Benares. I have visited. Uh, but of course, I, you know, I grew up, I went back to India after a while. So, and I know it's, it's a tough country to get right on, on the page. There's so much. And, and even writers in India are always struggling with what to write about and what to leave off the page. So it's, it, it's a difficult country to represent on the page. So yeah. I think it's a challenge that you've set yourself then, you know, a very difficult challenge. Um, and but even even with what one the other thing I feel guilty about, and I do address this in the author's note, is I only talk about the folks 
I mostly only talk about the folks who practice Hinduism in Banaras, mm -hmm. but the city, of course, just like the entire country, is home to people who practice basically every religion on earth. Yes. Yes. You know, particularly Muslims mm -hmm. have, and there's a very big population of Muslims mm -hmm. in Banaras. And it wasn't, the choice to not include those stories was not because I felt that any single belief system is superior. The choice was simply, I felt like I didn't have the mental bandwidth to cover everybody, that I was already writing this sprawling epic book with so many characters, so many storylines, so many things happening. And it was beyond my capacity to be able to add yet another thing, particularly something that I did not have direct experience with. Mm -hmm. I have that experience with Hinduism, but I do not have experience with those other religions. And that is definitely something I would not want to get wrong. Right, right. And that, that's a fair, that's a fair point. Well, and talking about culture and re religion, you know, no matter which culture or religion that we hail from, there are plenty of uh, ancient and contemporary rituals, traditions, superstitions around death, right? It's both as an event, death as an event, as well as death as another phase of life. Could you maybe uh, speak to uh, one or two such uh, rituals or traditions or superstitions that you find the most fascinating, not necessarily that you believe in, but of course that may be the case too, but just fascinating into, as a writer that you find most fascinating and why? The most fascinating one is one that I included in this book and I'm still riveted by it. And it's this idea of not looking back. Mm -hmm. So I talk about it within the context of funeral rites and those last rites and how the chief mourner has the responsibility once they're done with, with everything else that's involved in this process with the funeral pyre, they have to turn their back on it and push a pot of water over their shoulder to crack on the remains of, of the ashes. And they're supposed to walk away and not look back. And that aspect I have found, I, I've, I've never been involved in a traditional Indian funeral. And if it really is traditional, I wouldn't be because as you know, the chief mourner is, is always a man. Um, so I haven't participated in that sense, but I have been involved in a religious rite where that was something I had to do, where I had to go at the very end of this process, I had to go and take a dip in a river and then when I emerged, I had to turn my back and I had to walk forward and not look back. It was something I took very, very seriously. And the reason for that goes back to fairy tales. Because if you look especially at European fairy tales, you see that very, very often where you have the hero or heroine, they have some task that is assigned to them, some obstacle they have to clear they end up meeting some sort of magic man or woman in the woods who gives them the tools that they need to clear this obstacle. But they're specifically told, once you're done, don't look back, just keep going. And of course they end up looking back. If they didn't look back, then there wouldn't be a story to read. They always end up looking back. And I think I've seen it enough. As a child, I noticed that pattern, that repetition enough to just be utterly entranced by that idea. And 
I think there's just real human pathos in that the reason for why one would look would look back, even though every part of you logically knows that you really shouldn't, there is something in you, whether that be instinct, whether that be a knowledge that there's going to be a lot of pain caused by breaking the rule and looking back, but that pain is necessary to get through in order to reconcile whatever it is that you have left behind. Um, the idea is just so fascinating to me. And I think it also goes back to just the general idea within Hinduism of detachment, of, of this thing that you, you eventually do need to detach yourself from people, from situations, et cetera, but you can't do it prematurely. You have to make sure everything is resolved properly before you move forward with things and before you get to a point of, of, of not looking back. It's one thing to say, do not look back, but you have to be prepared and ready at that moment. It's not something that you can just do and expect everything will be fine. Yeah, no, I, I think that whole thing that you just mentioned about rituals of sort of, the, you need the ritual to move forward and I think not just with death but there are certain milestones or events in our lives right that we all create whether we're conscious of them or not we all create certain rituals I know I have them you know every time I've moved or every time I've moved into a new home or you know so that's that that is interesting um okay now what's next for you book wise or writing wise you know after this uh, the crazy book promo cycle is done yeah, um, so I'm very superstitious, Jenny, so I hate ah. to disappoint you, but I never talk about what I'm working on or what I'm mm -hmm. hoping to work on or or any of that. Um, okay. And the other thing is, I will say, I don't think writing is a guaranteed thing. Um, mm -hmm. I'm thankful for every day I am able to write, but I never expect on any given day that I will be able to write. I think when you can't explain where the ideas are coming from, when you can't explain where a specific image or sentence came from, I feel like you equally can't expect the writing to always be there. So I'm thankful for any day I'm able to write, and I would certainly love to be able to write more books, but I'm never going to take that as a given. Hmm. Um, I'm just going to take whatever time I'm given to write as a gift and enjoy it for that. And, and hope I'm able to write for as long as whatever that duration might be. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I came to writing and publishing, you know, as a second career later in life. And so I, every day that I write is a gift. <laughs> so I totally hear you. Um, okay, now my last question, I ask this of every guest. So what's your favorite Daisy book and why? My favorite Desi book is also just my favorite book of all mm -hmm. time. And that is A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth. Mm -hmm. um, this is the book where if I am stranded on a deserted island or we're living in some sort of post-apocalyptic society, this is the book that I want with me. Um, I have always loved these big, huge, capacious books with a lot of characters just absolutely epic in scope. And there is no book more epic than A Suitable Boy. He really packs, I think, the entirety of the human experience, every single human emotion, everything within this book. And I remember 
when I finished reading it, I was so devastated. This book is what in hardcover, it's like 1400 pages, 1600 pages. I never wanted it to end. I wanted him to just continue writing about these people for the rest of his life. And he could send out monthly installments to all of his readers, <laughs> just like Dickens in serialized form. If, if he had been able to do that, I would have been incredibly happy, but it's a book I love. There's humor in it, there's pathos in it, there's pain and love, and frankly, just everything is in that book. Um, I think it's always going to remain my favorite book of all time. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, I read it years ago, and I don't know if I've got the mental uh, stamina or patience, maybe, to sit and read it all again, but sure. I did when I was you know, a bit younger. I, I loved it. I spent a summer with it, and I loved it. So that's a great pick, thank you. And thank you for this conversation. Um, it was lovely talking with you, getting to know a bit more about your craft, about your book. And um, I wish you all the very best uh, in on whatever you're working on, with whatever you're working on. Um, and you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to reveal that, I, I hear you. I don't talk about my work in progress either. I'll say I've got something in progress, but I don't like discussing it. Sure. Yeah. I, I, it for me, it's more about saving that energy for the writing, so. Yes, yeah. yeah I, I totally get you. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And um, I will uh, drop you a note when this airs and uh, make sure I tag you on social media if you're there. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. All right. Take care. All right. Have a good Bye. one. You too. Bye. In the second Desi Craft Chat segment today, we've got Truthi Shah. She's an award-winning journalist, writer, producer, and storyteller in the UK. She's written on subjects including technology, business, women changing the world, comics, science, and much more. She has a wealth of editorial experience, built up first in local papers before jumping to global newsrooms. And she's led record-making BBC International Partnership projects. A bit about Bear Markets and Beyond. It's an illustrated guide where BBC journalists Dhruti Shah and Dominic Bailey take us through the world of business jargon with a bold graphic bestiary, as well as more familiar terms such as piggy bank, loan sharks, and rat race. There are alligator spreads, lobster traps, and even vampire squids. I so enjoyed this conversation with Truthy about how and why this book came about, um, the process to get it to publication, and some of the more profound reasons for why this book matters. Here she is now. Hi, Druthi, and welcome to the Desi Books Podcast. Thank you so much for talking with me today about your new book. Uh, and I'm really excited because it's coming out in the US. We don't, we, the dates changed, as you just told me a bit, uh, a little while ago, but um, it is coming out in the month of April, correct? 
Yes, so April the 27th, as far as I'm aware. So they had to bring more books over from the UK to the US. So that's a great thing. I'm really happy with that. So yeah, Bear Markets and Beyond, you will get it in April. Or you can just great. get it from the UK. Great, great. Um, and let's, let's, so let's first, let's start talking about how the idea for the book came about and how you and your co-writer, because there's a co-writer in, in this, I, I see that. And so how did you guys come about uh, the idea for the book and how did you come together to write it? So I'm the writer of the book and there is an illustrator. So Dominic Bailey ah. is the primary illustrator, but I have done the odd illustration here and there, but you know when you know what your skill set is and I, I'm i I'm a good illustrator. I'm just not a brilliant illustrator. And I found Dominic on Instagram. So mm. um, I was like, I've got an idea. So um, I'll, go, I'll go way back to tell you how it all came about. And I was working in the BBC's business unit. I am not a business expert and I would never proclaim myself to be like this, brilliant business expert with you know investment background and economics background no 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 I'm really good at storytelling so I got hired to get very dry subjects but make them relatable but while I was there I had a degree of false imposter syndrome because I would be surrounded by people who knew what they were talking about who had these degrees in economics and investments and and all that but when they would talk about things like um hawks for example you know the chancellor is a hawk or they talk about unicorns so facebook is a very famous unicorn mm -hmm. it's all in like common parlance as it were mm. i would start sketching because i wanted to try and make that sort of connect between what on earth they were talking about and and things that i thought i understood so you know i i know what a unicorn is like when you're five years old you, you get you learn about unicorns um i know what a hawk is it's a bird that's out there but how do i understand the relationship between nature and business and back in the day when we would be going on the commute into into work I'd be sitting there with a little notepad sketching so I actually drew a, a unicorn in a hood hoodie which at that point is what Mark Zuckerberg was famous for for being very relaxed in his attire um, so sort of making those connections and then Dominic Bailey is the illustrator the primary illustrator and I spotted that he was doing um, animal pictures on Instagram back in the day when you could see what other people were up to mm -hmm. and so I still never I still don't understand why he said yes <laughs> I reached out of the blue so he does work within the BBC much like I do but in a in a different part um, and we had mutual friends in common and I just said hi my name's Drusy I've got an idea it's a strange idea but it's an idea um, and fair play to him he was he, he got on board straight away and he came up and he said you know do you know about this creature what about this creature and again you know neither of us come from this business background but it's fun because the minute you start you go on a, a rabbit hole as it were because you know you find bear markets and you find unicorns and you find gray rhinos and and so much more and and I mean I just said rabbit holes um you know animals turn up everywhere in language and it just made business a lot more fun and we came up with this um very simple a to z guide that we eventually put out on the bbc and then we thought hold on a minute we've got more than more than an a to z we've got many many animals that we just can't fit in so for several years we just kept going and kept finding creatures and kept drawing and it was like a side project and a side hustle um and we didn't have an agent and and some people were like this is a really stupid idea because it's so simple but it came out the fact that there's nothing else like it out there and eventually we managed to find the right publisher so it's portico in this instance um pavilion books and they took a chance on us and 
now we've got this amazing book that's in like schools and libraries and you know Sir David Attenborough's got a copy and you've got a copy you know Jenny and, and you you know you're an amazing writer so I'm really honoured that you've got a copy to be perfectly frank with you so I'm really happy it's a dream come true. Well, no, and that and that's exciting. Uh, so you you know the the project, as you said, you know you, you took it took a few years, and and what's fascinating to me as well is uh, now now here's the thing. So I, I'm a certified financial planner. I used to work in Silicon Valley. I watch CNBC <laughs> daily. Okay, I check my stock stock portfolio daily. I'm familiar with a number of the terms here, like I know about hawks, and doves, and unicorns, but. There are some here that I didn't know at all, like deer market and, and meerkat effect and chimp paradox. And so, you know, but, but what's interesting is, you know, you mentioned how there's so many animal terms, right? You started to realize that there's this animal theme that kept showing up in all these metaphors, idioms and phrases and terms that are used in the business world. And you know what that made me think of is when I left the business world after I turned 40 and I, uh, one of the things I did along the way is I went and became, you know, I, I got certified to teach yoga and yoga also has a lot of animal terms, right? <laughs> All the poses, if you, if you go back to the original Indian words for the poses, cobra and, you know, uh, snake and this and that, I mean, there's like, uh, you know, the, the toad, the dragonfly. And so there's a lot of, you know, um, animal related things. And I, I, I'm just fascinated to think how, you know, here's yoga, which is centuries old. And, you know, the people back then were using all these animal uh, terms and here's the business world. And here we are again with these animals. So what is it with animals? Why are we obsessed with, you know, what, what do you think? Why do you think the, the animal terminology or the animal references are so prevalent in the business world. This is well, it's like you say, it's not just business, it's everywhere and anywhere. So, you know, we've we've we're trying to figure out how to sort of tie it together. And we we're like, well, actually, back in the day, and I when I say back in the day, I mean as in prehistoric times, you would have cave paintings. And what were they painting? What were they what were they what were they um sketching using, you know, using natural uh ingredients, natural materials? They were showing pictures of creatures you know, whether it's like pigs or horses or dogs or whatever. Humans have always been using animals and, and pictures of animals and conversation around animals in order to be able to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's, I mean, I can't say why. I just mm -hmm. know that it's very relatable. It's something that you can definitely think I've got that in common with somebody else because it's it's a language that I understand. And one thing we we have discovered, which isn't in the book so much but as I said the minute you start this research you 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 continue mm -hmm. you find that the animals um they cross boundaries as it were they they cross country and cultural boundaries so you would have a vulture investor which which doesn't always have the most um positive uh, uh what's with meaning so you know a vulture investor goes in and and, and they look to sort of mine uh, uh companies governments etc uh in order to make a, a profit so these companies might be at a very difficult situation and a vulture swoops in as it were but then we discover that in germany there is a word and i'd have to go and double check what the word is but it's the german word for locusts you know and that's being used because you know a locust uh you, you have a plague of locusts so they come in and, and they sweep again they 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 devour everything so 
you've got two different words. You have the German word for locus, which I should go and triple check. And, and you have like the vulture investor um, and vulture funds, which have, have spread and, and are, are the English. And yet thematically, we're thinking about the same thing. So it's, I think it's just because animals resonate, you know, who, who doesn't want to talk about puppies and, and dogs and cats? I mean, on the internet, when the, when the internet became, became a thing, as it were, I mean, it's, you know, we're all digitally hygienic now, but people were talking about cats. Mm-hmm. The cats had taken, taken over the internet. Why? Because cats are cool. I mean, they're a bit scary, but they're, they're cool. I prefer wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole project, <laughs> how it merged, how did I make sure that I was super confident about it, bearing in mind that it come from a degree of false imposter syndrome? I'm obsessed with wolves. I love wolves. Ever since I was a kid, I read um, White Fang, you know, and it made lonely little me as a, as a little girl feel part of something. And every time I had an issue, I just returned to White Fang. And so I, I was super happy when I discovered that there were wolves in business because it meant that I could navigate this world that I wasn't familiar with. And I think that's, you know, if, I don't know if there's a wolf pose in yoga, but if there is, I'd probably be a lot more enthusiastic about it. To be <laughs> I'll have to look that up. I don't recall, but I'll look that up and let you know. Um, but, um, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, reading about White Fang as a kid. And that made me think again about another, you know, you're right, animals were everywhere. And, you know, when we were kids, it would be in fairy tales folk tales and fairy tales you had the talking animals and even now you know Disney movies right Mm -hmm. so yeah animals are um, very prevalent and I think it's maybe because they're another living species and they have behavioral um, you know aspects to them just like human beings and so we see some sort of uh, way to equate I guess human behavior you know to the animal kingdom I suppose Um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, how did you choose or, or settle on which terms you would include in this compendium? I'm, I'm assuming that there were, you know, you mentioned the rabbit hole earlier, right? So I'm assuming there were some things you found, some truly esoteric ones that you thought, okay, we're not going to do those. But, you know, the, you, you must have had to kind of narrow down to a certain manageable number, both for yourself and for Dominic to, to work on. Oh, in an ideal world, we'd have included everything. We, you know, the minute you find one, it gets very exciting. It is literally like going on a safari. It's like, oh my gosh, it's this creature now. Oh, but we had to be super careful and we had to actually make sure that these words existed. That's the other thing and that they were in use. Otherwise we could just be dropping, you know, any old creature in. Um, so we would, we, the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary has been an incredible help in going back and sourcing um, first references for, for um for a lot of the creatures um you know when I so I I studied English at Oxford actually and we didn't get to go on field trips apart from one and the one field trip we got to go on back in the day so this is like 20 years ago was to go to the OED offices in Oxford and it was brilliant because it was like um you know it it was a ref you would see all the um the index cards and stuff that people were submitting uh explanations for for the words in the dictionary. And so that feeling that I got on that field trip many, many moons ago is no different to the feeling of finding creatures and being like, oh, we've got another one. But in terms of limiting them, bearing in mind, I mean, it's a book and you know, you write many, uh, you, you know, you, you've written many amazing books and we had an editor. And so we did actually provide a lot more to our editor, to Cara, than, than, was, than, than was kept in. 
Um, one thing I didn't say earlier, but I think is probably of interest, when we were trying to find a publisher and bearing in mind that we didn't have an agent, we created a prototype of the book. So we broke all the conventions in order to be able to get the book published. So we already have this um, prototype that I'd printed out with the ones that we thought were going to be in there. And when you compare it like this, you know, this um, this paper uh, book design that poor Dominic had to learn with, with the finished version, there are ones that I have to go back and check and go, is that one in the book or was that in the prototype? So there's one um, which I really like, which didn't make it into the the event, the final this particular book who knows whether it'll be in a future edition if one happens but it's the platypus Hmm. so the platypus is very journalistic um in terms of it's a it's more used in sort of journalistic technological circles and it's somebody with multiple um capabilities so they're not just a journalist they're not just in technology they do lots and lots of different things much like you know the platypus people were a bit confused about what it first was when when Hmm. it um when people when it was first discovered as it were so the platypus sadly didn't make it in which which you know we're a bit disappointed by it but we do believe it's something that's going to become even more prominent in conversation one of the other things that you know we have discovered is the ones that we uh ideas that we looked at so bearing in mind this project's been going on for like four years so the stag the stag for example Mm -hmm. is in the book and it's about it's an investor that basically wants to make a quick buck so it wants to to make a quick profit and, and move on and it gets in an uh, in an early stage um before a company is for, uh, listed on the stock markets what's happened now is that we've discovered that the stag is being discussed a lot right now in investment circles because a lot of people are coming in and trying to get into that sort of um mindset of being like okay let me get make loads of money uh let me invest in this and and run away again so in terms of what you're you know asking about ones that didn't make it in there are many many that didn't make it in but yet we still have within our our spreadsheet of plenty as we call it Mm. um but there are lots that you know there's there's another term that's just come up it's actually called the wolf warrior uh wolf warrior diplomacy and that's related to china and that's a really new term um, and so, again, if we had another edition, it's one I would include because it's becoming really important when it comes to trade wars. Mm. But what we did manage to include is um, is Mongolia and the wolf economy, because Mongolia wants to see itself as the wolf economy. You know, like you've got the tiger economies um, mm-hmm. of, of actually several different countries, um, to be perfectly frank with you. But Mongolia, because it has this spiritual relationship with the wolf. I told you I was a bit obsessed with the wolf. (laughs) um, People believe that they're descended from a wolf and a doe. That's why, in a way, it it wants to use that because there's already that connection there, but also because it's quite, uh, they see the wolf as very brave. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to like, what image do do people want to, um, do people, do do countries, et cetera, want to to portray um, to the rest of the world? So yeah, lots of lots of ones didn't make it. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. You put me on the spot here. There's I can this is the thing I can see. This is why the book's really good. I can see the image in my head, and I'm like going mm. to make sure that I get the definition correct. Um, you know, we've got one. I'm sure it's a fish fish related one. We've got we had several fish related ones, mm. and we were trying to figure. But then there's a lot of fish ones already out there. So that's the other thing we had to be very careful. Like there's only so many you know elephants that you can have, and so far in the book we've got elephant hunting, elephant oil fields, white elephant. Do you know what I mean? So right, and there were yeah. far so more you, elephants you to, out there. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You know, there were some. If it was too many of the same kind, 
you had to sort of, you know, cull them a little bit. Um, yeah. yeah, I totally get that. Now, you know what? Uh, what's interesting, as you mentioned the platypus, that just reminded me, and it wasn't in my questions, but I'm just going to mention it. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned the platypus uh, and, and how it's about knowing many things or doing many things. And that reminded me that back in the day when I was working in the business world, we used to talk about the fox and the hedgehog. And that's from, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the, you know, the philosopher Isaiah Berlin, it was one of his most popular essays that he wrote, uh, it's called The Hedgehog and the Fox. And basically it's, you know, in the business world, we would say the fox is somebody who knows many things, but the hedgehog, and, and they know many things, you know, they know a little bit of everything, but the hedgehog, is somebody who knows one big thing. And it's almost, you know, in the business world, we'd say you need both. You need both kinds of people. And so it's I'm funny. So no, 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 yeah. but this is the thing. I'm glad you raised it. That one, I found out the, like, as, as we we're going to, as we we're going to press, yeah. I discovered that one. I was like, no, why did I leave? Why did I forget that one? Because that's the thing you start. You yeah. Know, for some it's super obvious so like if like somebody like you with your background you you know you you know these terms mm. and you're like oh wait you know what about this what about this so there are so many that you could include but then for me someone like me who's just who's just new to the world as it were and being like oh I've discovered this I've discovered this it's about making that connection and being able to sort of go from por we've got porcupine provision for example and, and mm. that's linked to like shark replens but being like actually how can I get to the fox and the hedgehog and you know who's also really good I mean, because mm. I know you know about folk clubs and stuff. Aesop, Aesop and his yes. fables. Oh, yes. Aesop yeah. and his fables, they've, they have had a significant um, influence mm. in, in resulting in animals here, there and everywhere. And it wouldn't surprise me if the fox and the hedgehog also has some sort of link to Aesop, to be perfectly frank. Oh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that Isaiah Berlin got that from those fables, for sure. But I mean, he kind of just took it like a whole step further. But yeah, you're right. Um, you know, and, and so you're talking about these and, you know, the, what we just, what, what you just described there or you mentioned there was origin stories, right? And you mention in, in the book with some of these, you mentioned the origin stories. And so while, you know, while I know the terms, I didn't know a lot of these origin stories that I read in your book. And some were really fascinating I, for me, especially the ones with origins in China, like you were saying earlier. So my question to you is, you know, which ones were the most surprising or shocking for you to discover? You know, like you said, you're not from that world. And so for you, some of this was very new. So what was, if you could give us one or two that were the most surprising or shocking for you in terms of, you know, oh, wow, you know, I'd never have thought that. Well, this is the thing. It's because I have a background in verification mm. and sort of fact checking. Is that it's, it's being the journalist. So, as we were going through, it, we were we were both Dominic and I were both like, it's all very well that we've got like here's some cool um, creatures and we can explain, you know, um, a shark repellent is this. But ideally, we want to understand how it's come about so we can actually verify it and we can be like, okay, this came about in this time and this was actually used by by this person and if i'm just going to refer to the book because mm. one of them is actually i think it's the lame duck so mm. the lame duck switches between politics and business as it were um but what i liked about the lame duck is um so i'm just going to uh, read it out because it's my mm. own thing but a lame duck it refers to an individual or a company that cannot keep up with the rest of the market so i think many people can 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 get that that they know that like oh if somebody mentions a lame duck oh yeah you know it's it's um it's slightly problematic but what's interesting about the origin stories is that it was coined in the 18th century at the london stock exchange and it referred to a stock bro broker who default defaulted on his debts 
And then we're like, well, that's quite interesting. But remember I said earlier about the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, being um, one of the useful reference points that we went back to again and again. I absolutely loved it when I went back into the, um, uh, the citations. And the OED cited the letters of um, this English writer who I know from, from studying um, his Gothic novels. His name is Horace Walpole. And in mm -hmm. you know, 1761, his was the first recorded use where he wrote, do you know what a bull and a bear and a lame duck are? And I'm like, that's so cool because I never would have thought that Horace Walpole, who writes, you know, who who writes about gothic things and and, and to me is associated with with horror world, is actually somebody who who wrote about the lame duck and managed to help get it into conversation. That now, you know, if you Google now, you you will see it being used on basically a daily basis somewhere whether it was Donald whether it was Donald Trump at some point being described as a lame duck before a lame duck president before he he um finally sort of left the the White House or you know whether it's um a country for example being described as a, in a lame duck position it's something that we use everywhere but then to hit to to learn that I thought was really really pretty cool and then another one would you know again we all grow up and a lot of us when we're kids have piggy banks mm -hmm. and for me looking into the history of the piggy banks and although it's not about investments or anything at the end of the day it's potentially your first exposure to savings and the piggy bank I thought originally it was just you know people saw pigs and 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 that's where it came from that they ate so much and it was like well no actually the piggy bank goes back to I think it's 1450 and it's um the word pig which I think is spelled p-y double g I might have to triple check that by the way so I apologize if that's wrong but um it's 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 um yeah, it is PY double G, but this was an earthenware pot that people would put their money in. So it didn't look like a pig. So what mm. happened is it's the other way around. Actually, when people started fashioning um, uh, these pots into something, you know, cool to sell because they had the word pig already, they then designed it so that it looked like the other pig. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I had no idea about those origin stories that you mentioned with Horace Walpole um, or even the, you know, the pot. Um, they're fascinating. I mean, was there ever a point then when you were doing all this research that you thought, oh, you know, this particular term and its story should be like an entire book by itself? Like I, I was reading and I thought, you know, turtle trading. Oh, wow. I thought that could be like a whole business thriller on turtle trading, you know. So, I mean, was there ever something that jumped out at you where you thought, oh, God, that should be like a whole book on it on just this one term or something? I mean, so I think turtle trading has a book itself anyway. The guy's done oh, really well out of it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's okay. only a book on turtle trading. Um, but the others, to be perfectly frank with you, they'd make, I don't think they'd all make like full, you know, full on fat books, but they'd make little mini novellas. They'd make mm. little episodic um, stints because mm. all, we, all we've done, our book, Bear Markets and Beyond, the whole point of it is just to be a primer, just to mm. be an initial, guess what? Here are some creatures. Um, we're not going to give you the full be all and end all to be perfectly frank with you because some of them are going to involve things like dragnet clauses and stuff like that and you're going to have to go and learn those terms mm -hmm. in order to be able to then understand but what mm -hmm. we're going to give you is a starter point much like a children's story or, an, or a, a folk tale mm -hmm. that if it's a term that you particularly enjoy yeah you can go off and write a whole book about it you know you've got like you know like Robert Ward for example he came up with the civets and that that's actually quite a recent term in the fact that um, when he came up with it, the civets is um, it's an acronym that 
happens when you bundle Colombia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Egypt, Turkey, and South Africa together. And everyone thought, okay, you know, these are going to be emerging markets that are ones to really watch. They didn't fully uh, emerge to the extent that everybody thought they were going to. But again, you could create a whole, well, Robert could create a whole book out of the fact that, well, actually what happened to the civets? I thought they were going to be this huge thing. And then the other thing is, you can get all these cool little facts about civets and stuff, you know, that this small nocturnal mammal found in Asia and Africa. So you've got like a double hit. And that's why I love it so much and why I'm still passionate about it, even though it's, it's, it is business. And I have been talking about it for a while because you learn something new each time. Mm-hmm. And that's the cool thing. You know, you learn something cool about the animal, like civets, by the way, they're the ones that um, are linked to coffee. I don't drink coffee because I get too hyper, but you know what I mean? They're the ones that are linked to coffee where people would drink the coffee made from the beans that would pass through their bottoms. But then there's a whole- Oh, thing I about heard the- about that somewhere. I read about that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then there's that whole thing about whether that's ethical or not. So you've got, <laughs> well, you know, the minute you start, mm. they then end up in that rabbit hole. That rabbit hole doesn't stop. I'm telling yeah. you. So yeah. yeah, you've got to figure out what point do you need to t- chapter end as it were. Right. Um, and I find it hard because, you know, I have to be like, stop, you know, stop, stop, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the black swan, for example, the black, again, many, many oh. people know what a black swan is now. Right. And when we started looking into it, this didn't make it into the book so much, but even then, um, uh, Nassim Nicholas um, Talib, but he, he's mm-hmm. the one who came up with, he, no, he didn't, he didn't actually come up with it. He's the one who popularized it as mm-hmm. a concept that, right. you know, black swan events are outlier events that, you know, in hindsight, people can add explanations to. And everybody talks about that nowadays. Mm-hmm. So when you actually look at the term black swan itself, and he does refer to it, it's aeons old. It's like so ancient that it goes back to like, you know, you you are literally looking back in history as to why do th- people think that black swans are rare? Are they actually rare? Where are swans used elsewhere in terms of different languages as a, as an, un, you know, in terms of how unusual they are? So, you know, this is the point. I'm now going to start going to completely off tangents. I'm like, <laughs> where myself in? But, you know what I mean, it's, 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 I like it because well, it's, it's also, I think it's about language, right? I think that's one of the reasons, you know, that to your point, there's all these stories, but it's also about how we use language and how we use terms to mean multiple things. Now, now, and speaking of that, these terms, some of these, you know, that you've described in the book, they're influenced by or have been coined on social media, which means they're fairly recent, right? But it takes... To, you know, as you know, it takes a certain something for a term to go viral and then to stick. So, you know, some of those uh, social media related terms like, you know, vomiting camel and milkshake duck. Can you like in your mind, how like as you were reading up on these and learning about how they went viral, how they stuck um, and became part of this business lexicon, what what how, did that make you think about or view social media differently in in terms of how you know certain terms are invented and then stick because of social media no because i so my in my in my day job um for many many years i've been on the social beat so ah. it's sort of, um somewhere that i'm very very much immersed in in terms of how stories um originate from social the psychology of it why people post on social and what they what they do behind it so to be perfectly frank with you I was in a I was in very natural territory here in terms of uh taking one part of my life and and applying it so when with the milkshake duck that had been around for quite I mean 
yeah not that long ago but still uh, still in social times mm. because everything's so fast-paced it had actually been around for quite a while if that makes mm. sense so yeah. yeah in time times not that long but in social times Mm. <laughs> quite yeah because things move so quickly on social media right which is the, yeah. the next new cycle so I hear I hear what you're saying yeah but you're right about it sticking yeah. but the thing is it's something that kept coming up and in fact I think with the milkshake duck at one point you know they were looking to make it whether it was word of the year or frit try there were discussions about um at what point does it enter the dictionary so I thought okay fair enough if they're now those discussions that even the uh, the various dictionaries are are admitting in blogs that they're keeping an eye on these terms mm. then there's something for us to definitely be aware of in terms of with the book we wanted it to we didn't want it to date we mm. wanted it to be something that you could go back to again and again um and so with a milkshake duck we had significant confidence that this was a term that was now cemented enough in um in social parlance that people would want to know what it was if they weren't already aware of it and the other thing that's happening i mean the for those who don't know you know a milkshake duck it's, it's an internet it it refers to like this internet meme so it stands for somebody who has like all this popularity is like the the flavor of the moment it's a milkshake and then there's all this like revelation that, that you know they've got loads of flaws and so all that being famous and being amazing or whatever it makes it really problematic and then we hear a lot now about cancel culture which mm -hmm. in itself is, is to be honest a whole other ball game and and it's being used in very very different ways but if you're going to be talking about cancel culture, then you're going to need to know what a milkshake duck is. And so I'm super glad that we managed to get the milkshake duck in. Mm -hmm. um, and we did have a conversation with our editors about, you know, um, so basically we had some conversations with our editors too, because again, it goes back to what do we include? What do we not include? And also is a milkshake duck businessy enough to be included in a business bestiary? And my justification for it was, well, yes, it is because people have lost their jobs mm -hmm. after becoming a milkshake ducks, a duck even. Um, so, you know, they've become super famous and then people have gone through their social media history. And then it's been like, actually, no, you can't work here anymore. You know, you don't fit in with the ethos of our company, even though they might have said something, uh, you know, as a teenage mistake, for example. So I think it's something that people should definitely be aware of. And then the, again, the vomiting camel, I'm pretty sure Dominic spotted that one and flagged it out to me. So again, way before we had the book deal. And that one we thought was really important to include because people talk a lot about fake news at the moment and disinformation and misinformation. So for me, coming from that background and having had that background for, for many, many years um, in terms of debunking, I thought it was important because the vomiting camel is a lesson in not believing everything that you see on the internet. Um, and, you know, it emerged back in 2014 and um, it was an, uh, an analyst who uh, her, her colleague had spotted this weird pattern on a, on the um, RDX, which is the Rus Russian Depository Index chart, and then just you know, drew a vomiting camel. She put it out on the internet and then it started to get a life of its own. And Katie Martin, who works for the Financial Times, picked that up and was always saying, this is a joke. I would be saying, oh, look, here's a vomiting camel formation. Oh, look, here's a vomiting camel uh, formation. But it was a, always a joke. But then some people didn't realize it was a joke. And so you'd see this poor vomiting camel sometimes appear in, in real life, like people going, ah, oh, yes, this means this. And you're like, what are you on about? You're literally making it up. It doesn't mean, any, it doesn't mean anything. It, it doesn't exist. The vomiting camel formation so you know on a chart it's like all these lines or whatever um, which people deduce looks like a vomiting camel it doesn't mean anything at all it does not exist um it was started as a uh, as a um uh, as an observation 
um, in terms of, oh, look, you know, you can make something out of nothing. And, and just people went with it because sometimes you've got to have fun in business as, as we've discovered. Yes. Right, so. right. Well, and so speaking of fun, let me ask you this. If you had to pick maybe one or two of your personal favorites from all of these, which would they be? So I'm not going to obsess about the wolves, but the wolves are definitely in there. But mm -hmm. um, apart from that, I really like the grey rhinos. Um, and I actually mm -hmm. have become um, quite friendly with Michelle Wooker, um, who came up with the concept. So she came up with the concept in response to to the black swans, which were everywhere. And the reason why I really like the grey rhinos right now is because so many people are discussing them, especially in light of the pandemic. So at some point, some people were like, is the coronavirus pandemic a black swan event in that it's just basically turned up out of nowhere, but we're going to be able to look back in hindsight? Or is it a grey rhino in the fact there were many, many signals there? So it's like this huge object um, that's charging your way with its, you know, big horn and everything that you need to be aware of. You know, is it something you're just going to ignore, even though it's coming up in your face? Or are you actually going to take heed of the fact you've got a massive grey rhino? coming up in, coming up in your face and that's the thing many people are saying with the pandemic there were plentiful signals that mm. something was going to be happening and the question was whether we prepared for it or not so I think the grey rhino is very very fascinating and I think a lot of other people are taking that concept too the grey rhino has really taken off in China um, mm. and it's you know part of uh, Chinese government financial strategies too and that came from Michelle having an idea and sticking with it so I think yeah that's it is definitely one of my favorites and I like the image that um you know Dominic's drawn in the book where you've got this like big gray um lumbering beast um just at you it is what it says on the tin as it were so right I like yeah and and you know you mentioned how I mean with the pandemic I mean I I think that's a very good example of how this term is so relevant for us today you know we had all the signs we had all the visible um, you know, markers of, okay, this is going to be a huge problem. It's going to be a huge problem. And then like you say in the description for this term, then things started to move fast, trampling everything in their wake, right? And that's kind of what happened with this pandemic. So yeah, very apt term. Um, exactly, exactly. Right. Um, so, I was going to yeah. say another one I really like is also yeah. hamster calf. It is one of my favorites and it's mm. partly because it became a little bit famous as a meme. And it's mm. a word that just emerged in the, again, no, that's a lie. It didn't just, so people think it emerged in a pandemic. So this one was our last image and our last definition that we put in before it went to, to press as it were. Mm. Um, and what I love about the image is that it's a hamster in a shopping basket eating like loads of um, toilet paper rolls. Yeah. But it means it, I've only discovered this actually very recently. So this bit's not even in the book. So you're getting some fresh information. It goes back to World War II, the term. So it's mm. been around for a very long time and it means um, hamster purchase. So the fact you've got this German term, again, um, seeing a peak because of the pandemic, because people are like, what is going on with all this stockpiling? I really like that as well. So it's again, taking terms that have been around for quite a while, but resonating and yes. are able to be applied in, in, current, in current times. And, and that's, right. what, that's why it's so fun you know yeah yeah i mean i've i've used the term you know i i've i've used i'm not hamster calf because i've not used the german term but you know in terms of hoarding like a hamster i've mm -hmm. used that as a as a as a simile so yeah that's interesting but you're and right you've got yeah you've got squirrels squirrel. well, so I, I haven't got squirrel in the book but people say to squirrel something away squirrel so something away yeah yeah no i mean what's amazing is how relevant 
a lot of these are and sometimes how we use them in daily everyday language without even realizing right that the origin or the context or the background where it first came from exactly exactly but that's the thing you know how can you be sad when you're talking about animals you can't yeah, that's why can't. I like it. yeah you know how yeah. can it be dry when you're talking about creatures you can't right right creatures and some of them aren't you know i mean they aren't real but they've clearly taken on um a life of their own you know we did talk about the unicorn we did talk about the dragon so these are mm. the creatures that are in the original bestiary you know the medieval bestiary and yet now right. they've got completely different definitions right right so so let me ask you then uh what what's next for you after all this book launch stuff is behind you are you working on another book is it at a stage where you could talk about it i was gonna say sleep i honestly <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah i'm i hear you i hear you <laughs> um, at the moment i'm completely immersed in the world of animals and and still sort of doing a, a lot more with them because this is this is something i actually have to learn in terms of having boundaries with with the fact that at some point it is going to have to stop mm -hmm. but we keep finding new creatures so the spreadsheet has has um the spreadsheet of plenty is still spreadsheeting of plenty as it were but no i do need to take a step back um it's been interesting uh, and you know, I know that you know you've you've had sort of your book. In fact, I, I've got a copy of um the translation books with um, yeah. Raphael Dolly. It was yes. brilliant, absolutely oh, amazing. Cool. So thank you. Yeah. You know, I'm I've got it next to me right now. But it's that whole sort of uh, taking a breather, mm -hmm. getting out of out of um out of this mode. The fact that we've been doing this while the pandemic's been going on, and having a book out in lock in lockdown yeah. has been a particularly strange experience because you don't get to have, you know, I've not seen it in a bookshop, which is is a bit sad. I didn't get to have a proper book launch, as it were. Yeah. Um, so I'd quite like to to um, have those experiences and be like, mm -hmm. okay, well that's that's complete, and I've done everything I can with with spreading the word about the book, and mm -hmm. you know, I'm super pleased. Like today, I discovered that it was in in another primary school, so a, a, um, a small person school, <laughs> and you know, it's in university reading list and stuff. So you know, it's it's been shortlisted for an award. So that's great. My, Congrats, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Well, considering it came, you know, some people are like this is such a dumb idea. I'm, I'm super <laughs> pleased that I pursued it because. I knew it would make a difference. So it's been a real um, resilience booster and a real confidence booster. But it is like, I do need to, I do think that when you've invested so much in a project that in order for your brain to be able to, to, to think differently again, that I'll probably have to take a bit of a break from anything animal related, um, animal business related at least. And then just let my brain have a rest and whatever's been mulling in the background that I've just not been aware of because of pandemic and having to actually, you know, working and doing care stuff at home and um, having the book and stuff. I'm hoping that my brain is going to be like, okay, have some time off. And now this is all the ingredients that have been going on that you don't know about. And here's the next idea. And maybe this could be a book or this could be some other innovative project that, mm. that, that will keep you going I always just like challenges something yeah. different just to keep the brain going right no and I hear you about needing a break I think you know launching a book during a pandemic uh, as you said I've been through it and it's exhausting and it's weird and yeah taking a break to just let things settle um there's no harm in that at all so so my my last question is kind of sort of related to that which is and I ask everybody this which is what's your favorite Daisy book and why 
Oh, that is a good question. Well, the, at the moment, yours is, so it's a bit annoying, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I'm very happy to hear you say that. Well, it's not, it's it's a translation, so it's Dunkate, though. It's it's the, the original yeah, writer. Yeah. Even though I'm a goodie, I didn't know. And I spoke to my mum about this, and I was like, mm -hmm. who's this? And what's mm -hmm. going on? So my parents are, are Kenyan, in, mm -hmm. in the, well, Indian, but Kenyan in origin. And there are loads of things that we don't know either, because I think things get sort of mishmashed up. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, yeah, I've been go I've been waxing lyrical about the um, translations, to be honest, and and the stories and, and the, po for, you know, I know it's a, it, you've said it's one of the more famous ones, but this story about the, the post, post office. office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's about connections. And for me, um, right now where it's been super difficult to make connections and it's involved so much more effort i found it really has resonated so yeah right now you're in my good books because you've oh. given my given me my current sort of favorite desi book as it were <laughs> great well now that's great and you know i i love when people read in translation because i i always say that the best south asian literature is written in is not written in english the best south asian literature tends to be in non-English languages and we need to have more translators to give to bring them to us because obviously we can't read that many languages nobody can you know I, I only read one or two you know I so for me to read something from Tamil or or you know um, Bengali I need somebody to translate it for me because there are amazing stories out there um, and yeah I think it just there's so much diversity in, in in just one country right <laughs> you know exactly. yeah. you know it's it's it really is i mean this is a bit of a, a, a cliche to be honest but it is a melting pot and that's what yeah. you need to have access to and by having access to that it helps it helps you belong a lot more i think because you're like okay the mo uh, this is what i love about reading and then i know it sounds very basic in that respect but it is whole other worlds and it is about finding answers um, when you're not able to find answers in in that which is around you and that's where reading is so magical and being able yeah. to go through into heritage into um into history because that's what you're doing at the end of the day yeah and, and you know I, I heard you on that podcast that you had shared when you mentioned this book and mm -hmm. you would be amazed through the and I'm, I'm digressing a little bit but you'd be amazed at how many people have read the Dunketu translation and said to me that this was a way for them to reconnect with their Gujarati culture Mm. Even though some of the stories are almost 100 years old and some, you know, they're reading it in, a, in not in Gujarati, they're reading it in English, but there are aspects and I tried to make sure I was keeping some of the Gujarati-ness in there. But, you know, it's a way, one of the reasons that I ended up doing translation was I wanted to see people like myself and I wasn't seeing them, right? I mean, when I say my, myself, our culture, I just wanted our heritage. And even though I don't, we're not, people like the people in these stories, right? We're, we're living in the 21st century. We're not living in the 19th or the 20th century, but there's still something there that helps you connect. And I thought that, that um, it's resonated. The book has done well, I think, because well, there aren't a lot of Gujarati translation works to begin with. And so this kind of filled a gap in the market. And then, you know, people like yourself who kind of have that disconnect because you weren't born in India, you haven't lived there. and that this is one way for you to you know connect with your to ancestors like, yeah to be like okay this is this is in a way why I'm a little bit why like why what I am yeah because it's sort of been you know we're inherited and I think that's super special and super amazing and you said about you know people like us not being there one of the reasons I think maybe I was so Rottweiler Rottweiler like about this book mm -hmm. um and I think it's super important is that growing up you don't like your name my name we don't have our names on books in Western in Western libraries. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, and that's not not a bad thing in terms of like, you know, I had access to amazing books, et cetera, et cetera. But I never saw a Shah like um, on a book when I was growing up. And this book, because it's for kids as well as adults, every I was ready to give up at points. If I'm perfectly frank with you, I was tired. I was exhausted. I was like, nobody wants this book. You know, I can't get an agent. I can't I, I can't do this in a conventional way. I don't understand it. But my nephew. So, again, you know, um, uh, another generation down mm. he was like every time I went to go and see him have you tried this publisher have you tried this children's publisher have you tried this <laughs> oh I can't wait to have my name in a book because he's going to be in the acknowledgements so oh. I mean, um, but you know what I mean it's like can, can you try this can you try that and for me it was like it's important for me to have got to the point of exhaustion with making sure that I've tried to get this published because this child is is very young and he's interested in business yeah he's you know he's under 10 years old and he's interested in business his you know he's, he's encouraged his sister um who's even younger mm. to now be interested in business and they will sit there and they have sat there and they have read this book like not, not even just for their names but because of the fact that you know they'll be like they can tell you that how a bear market operates from the words that are used so the things that they understand they can tell you what the images are like and they have also gone off and done their own thing and they're not the only kids who, who have done that I've seen so many kids from different cultures doing it and I'm like that's why people like you and I do this even though it's blimmin difficult and it's hard and people don't want to hear it you know or you know who are you writing for what's it for mm-hmm. it's for everybody you know why because that's how we have to we have to cope we can't just be for a minority. We can't just be for this audience because we have to assimilate. We have to be chameleon-like, as I use the animals. We have to move between um, so many different um, identities. Mm-hmm. So it's unsurprising that your books, um, reson- you know, are beyond Desi Reads as they were, to be perfectly frank with you. Right. It's unsurprising that my book yeah. is very, there's nothing like it on the market mm-hmm. because we spend so long probably trying not to be pigeonholed again mm-hmm. sorry for the, the unintentional puns here but, <laughs> but but it happens and I think mm-hmm. that is super key for people who are entering this this world of publishing etc cetera, etc cetera, or doing any project actually not even just publishing that we have to be capable of doing so much more so that others behind us yeah feel that they can also do it right you know, without being all the sort of idealistic but I just think it's super important yeah I, I always said you know when it's one thing to clear a path for ourselves but we have to make sure we're clearing that path for the folks who are coming up behind us right and and I you know I think that there is an entire generation of South Asian writers quite frankly before us who didn't do that and that's why it's been harder for us because you think it wouldn't be that hard, but it is been harder because there was a generation before us who did not necessarily do what you just said, which is, you know, hey, look, I've got to clear this path behind me. There are people coming up behind me as well, and I want to make sure they have a fair chance as well. So I hear you, and that's an excellent, excellent note, positive note for us to end on. And so I, I want to thank you, first of all, again, for, you know, this conversation this terrific book as you say it's it's just a very powerful book and even though it's the small compact thing but it's a powerful book in terms of what it does and what it represents in the market in in the industry so thank you for that and congrats again on the shortlist and I look forward to the book launch in the U.S. and we'll be cheering you on. 
You've been listening to episode 26 of Thaisi Books, news and views about Thaisi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Episode 27 will be up in a couple of weeks. Follow on Twitter at Thaisi Books or Instagram at Thaisi.Books and tag the account if you have requests or suggestions. Email at hellothaisybooks at gmail.com. The transcript will be up in a couple of days or so on the website, daisybooks.co. Stay healthy, keep reading, and write well. <laughs>